0: As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, This information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep Podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hi, everyone. We have a very special guest with us, Amy Damaris in Boston. Say hi, Amy. Hello. Uh, we're so excited to have Amy sharing her presentation tonight on her experience living with idiopathic hypersomnia. And Amy is the first person with idiopathic hypersomnia to go through the Rising Voices of Narcolepsy Training. And it was just such a joy and honor to work with her. So. Amy DeMaris is a SEO analyst living in Boston, Massachusetts. She was a member of the board of directors for the Hypersomnia Foundation from 2017 to 2020, which she became involved with after being diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia in 2015. As a Rising Voices of Narcolepsy trained speaker, Amy hopes to raise awareness of hypersomnia by sharing her story. Amy, go ahead and take it away.
1: Thank you. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm from Danvers, Massachusetts, and was until recently a SEO or search engine optimization analyst at TripAdvisor. And I'm going to be sharing a bit about my journey with idiopathic hypersomnia today. Growing up, my parents encouraged me to try everything. I was a Girl Scout, played soccer, a gymnast, played clarinet in marching band, on the math team, ski club, and was a cheerleader for 13 years. I was also an honor student, earning the nickname A Plus Amy. I don't know exactly when my symptoms started, but my parents have always said that I was a good baby. I was generally happy, always slept through the night, and could go down for a nap on cue. As I got older, I developed some habits like sleeping in a sleeping bag on top of my bed so that I didn't have to make it, and even sleeping in my jeans so I could maximize my time in bed in the mornings. Everyone in my life just thought I was sleepy because I was so active and that these habits were creative solutions. It's unclear whether the condition worsened or was just more noticeable transitioning from childhood to adulthood. But my condition seemed to have a greater effect on my life as time went on. I also got mono in high school and had a concussion in college. When I was a cheerleader, I had to find ways to fall asleep sitting up and get some naps in. If you've ever been involved in competitive sports, you understand. On this day, I somehow woke up at 6 a.m. for hair and makeup and then had a two-hour drive to the competition, which lasted from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., followed by the two-hour drive home. It was more than just feeling tired. It felt like someone nailed something heavy to my face between my eyebrows and in order to open my eyes, I needed to lift it with my eyelids. It was nearly impossible to fight or overcome it, so I would always find a way to nap. I studied accounting in college and becoming a certified public accountant or CPA was my goal at this point. In order to become a CPA, you have to have a graduate degree, in addition to passing a series of four intense exams. I would fall asleep quite often during classes, but I still did well somehow. So I didn't think that it was any more than what college kids do. I applied and was accepted into the master's in accounting program at Northeastern in Boston, Massachusetts. And it wasn't until grad school that I ever thought my sleepiness could be abnormal. We went out, One evening after one of our last classes before graduation, and we're all sitting at a table at Connor Larkin's Grill and Tap across from Northeastern University, one of my friends put his arm around me and said, you know, Amy's a really cool girl. It's too bad we can never talk to her because she's always sleeping. It was at that moment that it hit me. It was sleeping constantly and was always tired. Maybe this isn't normal. I consulted with my primary care doctor, and we decided that I should reach out to a local sleep lab and schedule a sleep study to look for a possible disorder. Sleep studies are done by going into a sleep lab where they hook you up to lots of wires to monitor your breathing, brain waves, heart rate, et cetera, to look for various things like sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, or narcolepsy. My first sleep study was a PSG which is an overnight study. My results were abnormal, but didn't show any breathing problems related to sleep apnea. So I returned to the sleep lab for a second sleep study. This time, a 24-hour study, mainly used to diagnose or rule out narcolepsy. This consists of the PSG nighttime portion again, but then also a daytime portion called an MSLT, a daytime study with five nap opportunities, and for a narcolepsy diagnosis, they're looking for how quickly you go to sleep and how quickly you go into REM sleep. As a result of this, I was diagnosed with probable narcolepsy at age 22. The fact that the word probable was included in my diagnosis made me feel a bit uncertain, but at that point, I learned that narcolepsy is a chronic neurological disorder that impairs the brain's ability to regulate the sleep-wake cycle. It affects one in 2,000 people, which is 200,000 Americans and 3 million people worldwide. Excessive daytime sleepiness was the symptom that resonated most with me, but here are all of the symptoms. Excessive daytime sleepiness, which is periods of extreme sleepiness during the day that feel comparable to how someone without narcolepsy would feel after staying awake for 48 to 72 hours cataplexy, which is striking sudden episodes of muscle weakness, usually triggered by strong emotions such as laughter, exhilaration, surprise, or anger. The severity may vary from a slackening of the jaw or buckling of the knees to falling down. The duration may be for a few seconds to several minutes, and the person remains fully conscious, even if unable to speak during the episode. Hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations, which are visual, auditory, or tactile hallucinations upon falling asleep or waking up, and these can be frightening and confusing. Sleep paralysis, which is the inability to move for a few seconds or minutes upon falling asleep or waking up, and it is usually accompanied by the hallucinations. Sleep paralysis is something that I have experienced as well. And lastly, disrupted nighttime sleep. Unlike public perceptions of people, people with narcolepsy do not sleep all the time. Timing of sleepiness is off with narcolepsy, so one may fight sleepiness during the day but struggle to sleep at night. There are two forms of narcolepsy, narcolepsy with cataplexy and narcolepsy without cataplexy. Recent research suggests that narcolepsy with cataplexy is caused by a lack of hypocretin, a key neurotransmitter, that helps sustain alertness and regulate the sleep wake cycle. Less is known about narcolepsy without cataplexy, and I was di- diagnosed with type 2 narcolepsy without cataplexy. There is currently no cure for narcolepsy. Treatment for symptom management varies widely by person, but may include wake promoting or stimulant medications to increase alertness in the daytime, sedative medications to increase deep sleep at night. Antidepressant medication to decrease the occurrence of cataplexy and scheduled daytime naps. Coping strategies vary widely by person, but may include social support, such as meetup groups or social media, and improvement in general health and wellness through sleep hygiene, diet, and fitness. Around the time of my diagnosis, wearable actri- activity trackers were starting to become popular. So I got a Fitbit in order to try to automate tracking my general health, activity, and most importantly for me, my sleep schedule. One thing my doctors always asked me to do was keep a manual sleep diary, asking me to write down what time I went to bed, if I woke up during the night, and if and when I napped during the day. This was a laughable request to me. I had no idea exactly what time I went to bed or woke up, and the Fitbit gave me the ability to effortlessly hand over my data to my doctors in the form of an Excel spreadsheet. As I mentioned, I I was diagnosed with probable narcolepsy. However, I was told by my doctor that I didn't quite fit the profile of someone who has narcolepsy without cataplexy, but my results were abnormal and they needed to diagnose me with something in order to prescribe any treatment. My doctor was unwilling to explore what I might actually have, So I decided to take the matter into my own hands. I saw several sleep doctors and neurologists over the next few years, and none of them were able to give me any answers. So I turned to the internet for help. In 2014, my research led me to find the term idiopathic hypersomnia, which is a chronic neurological disorder marked by an insatiable need to sleep that is not used by a full night's slumber. People with idiopathic hypersomnia sleep normal or long amounts of time each night, but still feel excessively sleepy during the day. They may take long naps, but wake up feeling no better or worse than when they fell asleep. The symptoms seem to describe exactly what I was experiencing. Solidifying my hypothesis even more, the Wikipedia page mentioned that a recent study had shown that Raynaud's was significantly more common in people with hypersomnia. My understanding and experience with Raynaud's is that it is a non-life-threatening disorder where the blood vessels in your fingers and toes narrow when you're cold or feeling stressed. When this happens, the blood can't get to the surface of the skin and the affected areas turn white and blue. And when the blood flow returns, the skin turns red and throbs or tingles, of course, Raynaud's has no known cause or cure either, and I had just been diagnosed with Raynaud's separately and didn't think that it could be related to my sleep disorder until then. I learned that Emory University was a world-renowned leading center in the diagnosis, treatment, and research of hypersomnia. So I called and scheduled an appointment at Emory. I went to Atlanta, Georgia, and got a lumbar puncture or spinal tap on my 25th birthday. When telling friends and family about this experience, one of them asked me if I had a cake. I'm sure I did, but believe it or not, I was excited for this procedure and the prospect of what could come from it. For me, there wasn't any better birthday present than that. I had my mother and my boyfriend by my side supporting me as well. I try to bring both of them to all of my neurology appointments because, well, It's a neurology appointment, and I'm not always self-aware enough to be able to communicate how I'm doing. And also, having them hear everything from the doctor's mouth removes the burden of having to try to explain what's going on with me to my family. I finally received the test results from Emory six months after the lumbar puncture. It took six months because of lab costs. As a research center, there is a cost associated with entering the lab, and they need to maximize the lab usage by collecting enough samples from patients before going in. The results confirmed a diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia, and this was a huge relief because this diagnosis seemed like a better fit for what I was experiencing. On the other hand, although I finally felt like I had a correct diagnosis, there were still no approved treatments. Idiopathic hypersomnia can be treated with a few different kinds of medication, but it's important to note that none are FDA approved specifically for IH at this time. Like narcolepsy, it can be treated with wake promoters or stimulants for daytime sleepiness and nighttime medications. IH can also be treated with histamine directed medications and GABA directed medications. This last one stands out for me. Flumazenil is a GABA A receptor antagonist, which is approved by the FDA for IV use in hospitals to reverse the actions of benzodiazepines such as Valium. And in the instance of patients with hypersomnia, it's being used as an investigative treatment in an off-label way to compete with a presumed naturally occurring chemical in the body that acts very much like Valium. Such a treatment is 180 degrees from all current FDA-approved medications meant to treat narcolepsy, which act to promote wakefulness by enhancing brain chemistry that promotes wakefulness, whereas flumazenil is promoting wakefulness by sort of neutralizing the tendency to be sleepy. For my treatment, I use flumazanil before bed, and I take stimulants during the day and it was my test results from Emory that allowed me to try Flumazenil as a treatment. I had heard from people in IH Facebook groups that some had had success with Flumazenil, so I was very excited. And for me, Flumazenil has been life-changing. It's a compounded cream that I rub on my arms and it helps me wake up in the morning. This is huge. I still don't like waking up in the morning but then again, I haven't met many people who do. The difference is that when I put flumazenil on, I can wake up in the morning. My alarm goes off and I still want to snooze it, but the fact is I hear it and I wake up. I'm thankful that I can now call the boyfriend I mentioned earlier, my husband. We've been through a lot and most of the difficulty has come from my illness. I was diagnosed not long before I met him, and hadn't figured out the right treatment yet. He'd often get frustrated with me that I couldn't wake up on time for work in the morning, yet sometimes I wasn't able to fall asleep at night at a reasonable hour. He couldn't understand why when he asked me to do simple things like take a shower, it was met with resistance. Diagnosis and education about hypersomnia has helped us both understand and address things in a positive way. From my husband Evan's perspective, it has helped him in terms of patience and understanding because he understands that most of my behaviors are not intentionally directed at him. I've also learned to better communicate when the hypersomnia is especially strong or affecting my mood, making it easier to be supportive. And lastly, I've learned to better communicate my needs in terms of naps or bedtime and not burn the candle at both ends trying to function like everyone else while struggling to remain wakeful. In a nutshell, we have evolved our relationship to adapt to this condition and understand some of the nuances of how hypersomnia affects it. And it seems to be working out quite well so far. As for my career, I studied accounting in school and started my career as an auditor at an accounting firm, which was an incredibly demanding job. After my diagnosis, I stopped taking the CPA exam and trying to be a star auditor and pursued an accounting role in a company that supports one of the things that I love, which is traveling. Once I was in at TripAdvisor, I started experimenting with different departments and finally landed a role on the Attractions SEO team after a few years of trying. I left a job in the department that my degree was in and finally found something that I liked doing and allowed me to be more creative and actually have an impact on the business rather than just accounting for or keeping track of what the company was doing. It was a bit terrifying to make this transition, but I'm glad I did, and it's been incredibly satisfying and rewarding to finally be in a role where I can do more of what I love, like designing experiments to test user behavior theories. Working for a website also allowed me the flexibility to work from anywhere by nature, and I secured working from home every Friday, along with flexibility in hours, as long as I got my work done. As far as my lifestyle and social life goes, I no longer commit to doing things early in the morning. Before 8 a.m. is inconsistent for me and really not possible for me to guarantee that I will be there. And I've learned that committing to doing things before 8 a.m. puts me at risk of letting people down. I also no longer feel bad about leaving a party early because I'm sleepy and want to go to bed or declining an invite to go see a movie, which will likely be in a dark theater where I might fall asleep and miss the show. Many of my friends do not know about my diagnosis, but I suspect that will begin to change as I speak more openly at events like this. For the family and friends that I have told about my diagnosis, none of them have been surprised at all to find out that I have a sleep disorder. I don't feel like they fully understand what it means, but their reactions are all supportive and happy to hear that I'm doing all right with treatment. Through all of this, I've learned to only do the things that bring me joy and to tactfully decline the things that don't. I figured this one out pretty recently and it has done wonders for my mental health. I was a member of the board of directors for the Hypersomnia Foundation from 2017 to 2020, and I plan to continue to be an advocate for people with idiopathic hypersomnia and related disorders. Because of low awareness, even among physicians, and misperceptions, 10 to 15-year delays between narcolepsy symptom onset and diagnosis are not uncommon. It's estimated that the majority of people with narcolepsy are currently undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Common misdiagnoses include epilepsy, depression, and schizophrenia. Based largely on sleep center referrals, Idiopathic hypersomnia appears to be one-tenth to one-half as common as narcolepsy. However, no prevalent study has been done. I'm proud to be the first person with idiopathic hypersomnia participating in this program. And I'm sharing my story with you today because I truly believe that these sleep disorders, idiopathic hypersomnia, narcolepsy, et cetera, are not rare but are just rarely diagnosed. And I want to raise awareness with both the general population as well as medical professionals. Rising Voices is a program of the nonprofit organization Project Sleep and empowers patient advocates to share their stories and improve public understanding of narcolepsy. Thank you for listening to my story.
0: Yay, Amy. <laughs> oh, I'm trying not to cry too much. Oh. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. I'm just really impressed that you set a rule for 8am because I'm more of a a. 9am, like nothing before 9am. Like kudos to you for 8am. That's, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 10am is better, but. (laughs) And there's just, I just love your presentation. There is so much in there. There's so many great tips for people from learning how to communicate when you're um, feeling like your symptoms are affecting you, right, to your loved ones, to the 8 a.m. rule, and to doing things that you love. Uh, So I just think there's just so much in there for people, and it's such important reminders or information. And so my question is, it's pretty exciting, this is what gets me teary, um, that to be part of your journey, like in... I know you were, you got involved with the Hypersomnia Foundation, but to be part of your journey of you opening up about sharing your story and that, you know, like maybe for some people in your life, like even this broadcast will be the first time that they hear this -hmm. part of your life. Um, And I know that you also presented at the, at at a meeting for the Hypersomnia Foundation. So tell us about that as your first like speaking engagement.
1: I did. Yes. That I had the honor of presenting at the um Hypersomnia Foundation's patient meeting in Chicago last October. And it was, it was really special. It was my first time sharing my story. And honestly, there were there were a lot of new people there, people that were like, newly diagnosed. And I think the thing that was, you know, the most impactful impactful for me was, you know, people coming up to me at the end. Specifically, there was um, one guy that his wife had just been diagnosed and he was just in tears and and gave me a hug and was just kind of happy to hear that they can get through it.
0: And you are just an incredible role model. (laughs) So that is so wonderful to hear. And I think having voices like yours out there is just exciting. I know I was excited to tell friends that uh, have idiopathic hypersomnia to say, you got to tune in. So thank you for being the first person to go through this program with me, uh, with, you know, idiopathic hypersomnia. Did anything surprise you about the experience of going, of sharing, like, from what you kind of envisioned this program being like to ultimately your final Um, presentation?
1: That's a tough question. Um, I think just having the opportunity to listen to, like, everyone else's stories, um, especially with these sharing sessions, um, has really kind of made things more clear for me, like, reflecting on, like, what my experiences are. It's, like, helped me understand myself.
0: That is... True. I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I often reflect for myself like how much does narcolepsy affect my day-to-day life? Like yeah. symptom wise, how do you feel? Is it it's just really more of like finding that balance or or how are your symptoms now?
1: Yeah, I mean it's definitely trying to find a balance. I don't think that my treatment is perfect right now, but it allows me to lead a pretty normal life and yeah, really the waking up in the morning is, was the biggest symptom for me and the scariest <laughs> symptom. And so you, having that one under control really is helpful for me.
0: So we have a question from Meryl. I'm wondering if you need to nap when you are using daytime stimulants.
1: Yeah, no. I actually, I can rest, but I can't actually fall asleep when I'm on the stimulants.
0: You mentioned that you do love to travel. How has like, first of all, okay, I have two questions. One is like a favorite place you've been to and also how has managing your IH with travel? Then? Oh,
1: crossing time zones is tough. I try to make longer trips <laughs> um, just to be able to adjust. I mean, it's hard for anyone having jet lag, but I, I feel like it's especially difficult for us. <laughs> um, my favorite place in the world is Belize. Mm. Um I spent almost two weeks there with a group of nine friends and, um, you know, we went into the jungle and did all the ruins and the, the cave with just crazy like artifacts and as well as the geological formations. And then, and then we spent the second half on, on the keys in the islands,
0: <laughs> relaxing. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, any tips for building up the courage to speak with your story? Anything that helped inspire you to like be willing to share?
1: Apply for Rising Voices of Narcolepsy.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> will inspire you?
1: <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think, yes, Be it, like being part of the community and, you know, the class of, um, you know, Rising Voices speakers, it was, it really helped build my confidence.
0: I also remember that you, we did a meeting in Boston for a, um, a patient center yes. research project. Yes. And, and um, we, and it was, I, I helped coordinate a patient panel. There's a lot about research, but, and um, Amy was one of the speakers on the patient panel, along with Katie and um, forgetting the other girl's name right now. I can see her in my head, but sorry, I'm terrible with names. I think we talked in advance, uh, maybe on the phone, and kind of talked about sharing your story. And then, it was short, I don't know, five or 10 minutes, maybe a 10 minutes. Yep. And Amy had me like, like in like oh full God. out ugly tears, <laughs> like, um, just, I don't know. There was just something about it. And it was even videotaped. So my ugly tears were like on camera, <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, it was just, I think, and then telling you, reminding you after like how incredible you are. And then like, really like, Hey, Amy, come to rising voices. <laughs> right. So I think that was a step for because we already kind of knew each other and um, that's true. Mm-hmm. From Marianne, uh, do you have any advice about how to deal with sleep drunkenness when you first wake up?
1: I don't think I have any advice. I try to not have like in-depth conversations with my husband in the mornings. Usually, won't remember them. <laughs> so I think just trying to. Like make him understand like, yeah, I'll let you know when I'm ready for a conversation when I'm fully awake, but actually like overcoming it and no, I just kind of waited it out.
0: Sounds so tough, but it lasts for like um, a few minutes, a few hours.
1: I'd say less than an hour, but I don't exactly know how long. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was like, that's a little bit like me and my naps. So when I wake up from naps, uh, when I had a boyfriend that I live with, we, we didn't talk for a half an hour after I woke up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just kind of lived around each other, and mm-hmm. um, and then eventually I would be like initiate to be like, okay, I'm okay, I'm all right this time. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I exactly. Quite, what I, I would be quite. I could be quite angry and like mm-hmm. for things, which mm-hmm. not good. I think that's it for questions right now. You actually got more questions than usual. Thank you again, Amy. Yes, thank you.
1: The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.